0: As we come to our subject again this evening, I have wrestled and uh, done what I can once again to uh, put this in a in a manner that will be the most uh, listenable for a mixed multitude. I will remind you that I will be reading from the Word of God. I can make no... Uh, I can make no apologies for the Word of God in the very clear and sometimes the very graphic passages that are there. I have uh, done all I can not to be uh, too uh, explicit in the things that will be said, and this one will probably be the most difficult of the ones I've had to preach on this. After this uh, will simply be some observations and some applications. But tonight we must come to what is lying at the heart of this very issue of modesty. And uh, I think you will readily be able to see uh, what that issue is as we read the text this evening. Of course, you may be wondering where in the world would would we be reading in the book of Revelation regarding the issue of modesty. And it will be in chapter 3. We're going to begin and read verse 17 and then verse 18. So, brethren, let us hear the word of God. Because thou sayest I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear." and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. <clears throat> I pray the Lord add His blessing to this blessed word this evening. <clears throat> now, drawing from the biblical material, brethren, <clears throat> we have defined modesty this way. Christian modesty is the inner "...self-government, rooted in a proper understanding of oneself before God, which outwardly displays itself in humility and purity from a genuine love for Jesus Christ, rather than in self-glorification or self-advertisement." Now, likewise, drawing from the Word of God, we have seen that the warrant for modesty is first rooted in the holy character of God Himself and in His eternal purpose to conform His people to the image of His Holy Son, Jesus Christ. Modesty is also rooted in the seventh commandment, Thou shalt not commit adultery. It is quite clear that if God prohibits it, He is also prohibiting the things that would lead to it, carefully and biblically understood. And moreover, the Scriptures make apparent that modesty is not first an issue of clothing. It is primarily an issue of the heart. We can be fully clothed and yet be very immodest if we properly understand the word. It is primarily an issue of the heart, and brethren, if the heart is right with God, it will govern itself in purity, coupled with humility, and it will express itself modestly. Now, we next considered the origin of clothing and the necessity of modesty. God himself was the first designer of clothing. Nakedness was good until Adam and Eve's fall into sin. From that point forward, nakedness was covered for reasons of protection from the elements and for moral purity. I I emphasize again, as I did in, in the last two messages, the body is not wicked. The body is not bad. The body is very good. God created it. And it brings Him glory. The problem is not the body. Because of the fall, the problem is man's heart. And therefore, to preserve purity one of the things that helps in that, it's not all there is to it, but one of the things that helps to that end is a proper covering. Now, God covered Adam and Eve from their necks to below their knees with coats made of skins. And we'll talk about the importance of that particular region of covering uh, in another of our messages. God also clothed the priesthood down to their feet. The Lord Jesus Christ wore a garment that stretched to His ankles. Even the saints in heaven are pictured as clothed with long, flowing robes. Once again, the whole concept is that when God clothes, we always see a genuine covering. It is not abbreviated. We see the body Covered. Now, <clears throat> finally, we considered our motives for modesty. First, our aim must be the glory of God. That should be our aim in all things. And this is a very, uh, from, at least from my experience, a very ignored category in our lives. Our clothing is a language that says something and for the lord's people it should speak of purity it should speak of holiness it should speak of chasteness it should be modest <clears throat> and we want to bring him glory in it we want to we want our clothing to speak that we are not uh, possessed of the attitudes of the world but of those Attitudes which bring glory and honor to our God. Secondly, our, our motive must be love for Christ. We're to do this not because we just simply happen to go to a church where the preacher rants and raves about what, what you wear. That's not, the, that's not the goal. That's not the focus. And that's not the motive. Whatever we do must be to the glory of God And what must drive that must be a love for the Christ who loved us and gave Himself upon the cross of Calvary to purify a people zealous of good works. To cleanse us from our sins, to give us new hearts that desire what is chaste, what is good, what is righteous, what is pure. So we want to do it because we love Him. And our corrective must be that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit and that we're not our own. Our cry is not that of the feminists. It's my body. I'll do what I want with it. It's not the cry of modern evangelicalism. It's my liberty. I'll do what I want. It is the fact that these weak vessels of dust are the blood-bought purchase of Jesus Christ. He has purchased us spirit and body. These are His. And they are to be adorned in such a way that we honor the One who purchased us. We're not dressing for high fashion. We're not dressing for us. We are dressing... For the One who loves us and gave Himself for us. And our final goal must be love for others. The preservation of purity in them as well as us. And the desire not to provoke them to lust. Now, of course, there are those who always throw up the argument at this particular point that, uh, from my perspective they are throwing up, but they, they throw up the argument at this particular point generally that they say, well, you know, you can be dressed very nicely and people can still lust for you. That's, that's exactly correct. And we, don't, we don't argue with that. But the point is, At that particular point, it's all their issue. When we contribute to it, we become part of the sin. So, having reviewed these matters thus far, then, our message this evening is entitled, The Shame of Thy Nakedness. The Shame of Thy Nakedness. Christ's letter to the church at Laodicea is rich and is full of very important instruction for the Lord's people. But uh, that's not what we're going to look at this evening. Uh, We approach this for one reason this evening. We want to consider one principle contained in what he's saying. And it is found finally there in verse 18, but built upon the last word in verse 17. The church at Laodicea is wealthy, it's comfortable, it is worldly, and it makes God want to vomit them out of His mouth. They are lukewarm. That is strong language from the King of Kings. And he says, you don't even realize that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now, of course, he's not talking about... Physically naked. They are naked spiritually. They are deprived. They are helpless. They are poor. They have nothing, is what he's saying. And he says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed. You are naked. You ought to be clothed that the shame of thy nakedness, the shame of thy nakedness, do not appear. Now, of course, this is symbolic language. But, it is set forth in a theme and in clear day-to-day terminology that we can't miss. He's saying spiritually... Nothing in your hand you bring. You have nothing. Nothing. You should simply, to my cross, cling. What he's telling them is that in their wealthy, well-clothed, well-fed, comfortable, lukewarm lifestyle... He literally makes God sick. They literally make God sick at His stomach. And He wants to spew them out. But He says, I'm giving you counsel. I'm giving you counsel. Be clothed. Be clothed. And of course, that clothing is the righteousness which we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are naked in our sins, but we go to our beloved Lord In repentance and faith, trusting Him alone to be our righteousness. And all through the Scriptures, that blessed salvation is set forth before us. In the terms of clothing, we will be robed in righteousness. The garments of salvation, as we will see in a few minutes. And so He's saying you need to be robed so that the shame of your nakedness do not appear. Well, there is the obvious spiritual application to that. But it is built on an image that we must not miss. And it is all in those words, the shame of thy nakedness. The shame of thy nakedness. We want to see tonight the connection between nakedness and shame. The Lord speaks here that they need white garments. White garments in Scripture most often speak of purity and righteousness, of a holy character. Our culture, and even more tragically, friends, our churches, have lost the once common notion that nakedness is shameful. It is shameful. We have become so coarse and so callous, we no longer blush, and we know very little of the idea of shame anymore. We are so constantly barraged by images of nakedness that we can no longer feel a sense of shame. But the Scriptures put the two together and it is here that we need to be conformed to Christ's mind and not our culture. So let us consider the meaning of nakedness here this evening, the association of nakedness with shame, and then finally, the covering for nakedness. <clears throat> now, let's consider first the meaning of nakedness. and It is quite obvious. We don't have to go into great detail here. But there are several things that I want to bring before our, our minds here. Now, after carefully studying the lives and the writings of the Puritans... Edmund S. Morgan made this remark. In short, the Puritans were neither prudes nor ascetic. They knew how to laugh. They knew how to love. But it is equally clear that they did not spend their best hours in either love or laughter. They had fixed their eyes on a heavenly goal which directed and informed their lives. When earthly delights dimmed their vision, it was time to break off. Yet even this side of the goal, there was room for joy. Close quote. That is a very good and excellent statement. Or several sentences, I should say. But they were neither prudes nor ascetics. I think I said that singular a minute ago. It's plural, ascetics. Now, the same thing that Morgan observes regarding the Puritans can be said of the writers of Scripture. They were neither prudes nor ascetics. The existence of the Song of Solomon in Scripture... And numerous other graphic portions of Scripture make one thing perfectly clear. Physical attraction and intimate relations between man and wife are neither shameful nor sinful. And that's vital for us to get a hold of. The Bible is not prudish about these things and speaks of them plainly and clearly, we must consider, however, that Adam's fall into sin, or after Adam's fall into sin, the words naked and nakedness became a biblical substitution for male and female reproductive organs This is very plain in the Hebrew especially <clears throat> This term is most often associated in scripture with shame It is it also regards sinful and shameful immoral acts uncovering nakedness spoke of fornication, of adultery, of wicked and immoral acts. This connection between nakedness and shame is directly rooted in the fall. Remember, we looked at the fall last week. Prior to the fall, there was no shame, there was no guilt. But after the fall, there was. Because of man's now wicked heart. And he took what God had made and declared good and regards it in evil and wicked ways. Now, as I said, a few of these passages are somewhat explicit. I've gone through many of them and I have chosen those uh, that I think least uh, likely to... A shock anyone here, but dear brethren, I hope you've read the Scriptures enough to know that they're there. This is the Word of God. He is holy, and we are not more holy than He. So I have chosen, hopefully, these carefully. But I, I bring this up to uh, say these things. We need to recognize that nakedness evokes numerous and varied images throughout the Bible. Uh, the many usages include original innocence in the garden, they were naked and were not ashamed, as it says, <clears throat> defenseless or vulnerable, someone is naked if they have no defense, um, exposed or deprived or helpless. humiliated, guilty, and ashamed. Now, that's what we really want to get a hold of here this evening, is the fact that in our day, listen carefully, I want to try to make this as bold and black and white as possible. In our day, nakedness is considered good. It is promoted all Around us. In the Word of God. Exposing oneself. Is shameful. Amen. This is one of the reasons. Intellectuals hate the Bible. There's always these people out there. Supposedly like preachers. Who fill people full of guilt. When they should just let them alone. And let them enjoy whatever they want to enjoy. Brethren. Brethren. I must tell you what your Creator says. Now, Leviticus chapter 18 verse 6 says, None of you shall approach to any of his near kin to him to uncover their nakedness. I am the Lord. So to uncover nakedness here means to commit sinful, immoral acts. And here there can be no argument, according to God's Word, uncovering nakedness in this sense, for the purpose of immoral relations is sinful and it is shameful. But obviously these are secret or private acts. What about in public? What about public displays of nakedness? Well, that brings us to the association of nakedness with shame. And we will look at a handful of passages here. Throughout the Bible, the idea of one's body being publicly uncovered and exposed is always, always associated with shame. The words translated nakedness, which specifically refer to the reproductive organs in both Hebrew and Greek, are most frequently associated with Shame. In Second Samuel chapter ten, verse four, it says, Wherefore Hanan took David's servants and shaved off the one half of their beards and cut off their garments in the middle, even to their buttocks, and sent them away. Well, today that would be no big deal in many places. As a matter of fact, all one has to do is walk a few blocks down to the beach here and you'll see people that have most of their hindquarters completely exposed. But my point in reading this passage in its clear declaration is that we might see and sense that he was shaming these men. He was shaming them By exposing parts of their body. Isaiah chapter 20 verse 4. So shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians prisoners. And the Ethiopians captives. Young and old. Naked and barefoot. Even with their buttocks. Uncovered to the shame of Egypt. It couldn't be any plainer. They had conquered them, they were captives, and they wanted to shame them in the eyes of the world. They wanted them to be humiliated, and to feel little, and to feel embarrassed. So what did they do? They exposed them. In this country, we parade it. Why? We have lost all sense of shame. Israel, because of its rejection of God's law and its breaking of the covenant, brought upon herself God's just wrath. And how did God describe it? Well, He did it in many ways. But He describes His judgments like this in these passages. Isaiah 47, verse 2. Take the millstones and grind meal. Uncover thy locks. Make bare the leg. Uncover the thigh. Pass over the rivers. Thy nakedness shall be uncovered. Yea, thy shame shall be seen. Brethren, to uncover the thigh was a thing considered shameful. Why is that? Because this is a euphemism in the Hebrew that ultimately, and I will say this as delicately as possible, the thigh was always related to physical relations. Men understand that. O young ladies, I pray that you will lay hold of these things and understand that you are precious to the Lord and your purity is a thing to value, to value. The churches, the fathers should do all within them to preserve the purity of their daughters. Today, making bare the leg and uncovering the thigh takes place at 98% of the youth gatherings in churches across this nation. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 37, Behold, therefore, I will gather all thy lovers with whom thou hast taken pleasure, and all them that thou hast loved, with all them that thou hast hated, and i will even gather them round about against thee and will discover thy nakedness unto them that they may see all thy nakedness they shall strip thee also of thy clothes and shall take thy fair jewels and leave thee naked and bare brethren god himself uses these strong term uh, these strong terms this strong terminology to say I will shame you before the eyes of the world. And how will he do that? They will be stripped bare. There are countless places in this town where you pay to go and see this. Brethren, our culture is drowning in its stinking immorality. But the churches are helping it die rather than preserving what is righteous and pure and good. God says, I will shame you. You want to give yourself to everyone that comes by, we'll just lift up your skirt and show you to the world. That was shame. Nahum chapter 3 verse 5 Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts and I will discover thy skirts upon thy face and will show the nations thy nakedness and the kingdoms thy shame and I will cast abominable filth upon thee and make thee vile and will set thee as a gazing stock. Brethren, gazing stock today is the pastime of our nation. It is the pastime of young men in this nation. Fathers, you need to be teaching your sons to respect young women, not to ogle them. You should be teaching them how to handle their eyes and govern their hearts and how to protect young women rather than to take advantage of them. And fathers, you are responsible to make sure that your daughters are not making themselves gazing stock. Let's consider Peter for just a few moments. Nakedness is not simply limited to exposing certain private parts of the body. When a man took off his kutonet that was generally a sleeveless long shirt that went down Below the knees, that was the undergarment that uh, was the most common garment that people wore. When people uh, uh, were in this state, they were considered naked. The word, by the way, is gumnas. Anybody know what word comes from that? Gymnasium. sports were practiced in the nude. So, it's not surprising that many of their modern-day counterparts are pretty close to that. But while dressed in his undergarment, the Bible actually says Peter was naked in John 21, verse 7. It didn't mean that he had absolutely everything off. It meant he was down to this undergarment. He was out working with a group of men. That's a certain context. Burton Scott Easton says that both the Greek and the Hebrew forms mean without clothing, but in both languages they are used frequently of the sense of lightly clad or without the outer garment. When you took off your mantle or your robe and were simply down to that that undergarment, that was what the Scriptures called naked. Thomas Boston observed that the Hebrews called him naked who has cast off his upper garment. So the likely meaning of John 21 was that Peter was wearing only this undergarment. Peter was not sinfully naked in the context of his work. As a fisherman, he was laboring there with men away from the shore, not publicly socializing in a mixed gathering. Nevertheless, he obviously saw a difference between working in his boat and being on shore in the presence of the Lord Jesus. Why? Because if you read John 21 carefully, it says, He put his robe on and then swam to the shore. Can you imagine how heavy that would be? Why in the world would he do something like that? Aren't you just supposed to take all your clothes off when you go swimming? Because he understood that going to the shore he would be in a public setting. And he covered himself and swam in in his robe. So then, according to Scripture, one doesn't need to be stark naked to be shamefully naked. Gumnos means naked or stripped bare. That's the word. That's what it means. And without an outer garment, without which a decent person did not appear in public. This is what the lexicon says. The Greek lexicon that defines the word says, In that day, the decent person did not appear in public without an outer garment. Something covering that inner garment. Whether now our society has become so perverse that it is considered fashionable to wear garments on the outside that look like undergarments. Now this second kind of nakedness not only applies to Peter in John 21, but to the prophet Isaiah and to King Saul. The, the, star, the startling thing, when you sit down and think about it, is that something that went from his neck to at least his knee, actually, being considered naked, covered more of him than what is happening at the, uh, your local church retreat. Though this was not necessarily sinful... It was associated with public shame. This is why Peter covered himself when he swam to the shore. A decent person did not appear in public this way. This is why Peter put on his outer garment and swimming to the shore. It's why Isaiah was a sign of shame. God told him to go and walk in what was probably this undergarment. But even if Isaiah didn't actually have that undergarment on, what was the whole purpose of him going that way? To speak of shame to Israel. God said, I'm going to bring you down, and just like Isaiah is shamefully exposed, you are going to be carried off captives, shamefully exposed. It cannot escape the association with shame. Somehow modern Christianity seems to have missed this altogether. The same could be said for the humiliation of the virgin daughter of Babylon that we read in Isaiah 47, in the making bare the leg and the uncovering of the thigh. Isaiah's nakedness would not even be noticed at your average retreat today. His, his entire appointment by God would be missed. No one would be embarrassed. He'd have on more than many of the people there. Making bare the leg and uncovering the thigh are not only viewed as normal practice today in churches, dear brethren, it's considered one's liberty. And this leaves me... Dumbfounded. I don't know how one could study the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and see otherwise. But we leave that in the Lord's hands. Not only this, my friends, nakedness is associated with paganism. Public nakedness went hand in hand with ancient pagan religion. Fashion expert Allison Lurie notes, quote, Historically, shame seems to have played very little part in development of costume. In ancient Egypt, Crete, and Greece, the naked body was not considered immodest. Slaves and athletes habitually went without clothing, while people of high rank wore garments that were cut and draped so as to show a good deal when in motion. Close quote. The whole idea of being provocative. Oh, Brethren, while the naked body then was not uncommon for paganism, being without one's Outer garment was considered naked and immodest for God's people. For God's people. God's people cover their bodies in public, while pagans often uncover theirs. If that statement is true, which I think it is completely true, both from the scriptures and from history, What does that say about our culture? Not only that, nakedness of this fashion is associated with demonism. Nakedness goes hand in hand with demon possession. Luke chapter 8, we have the story of the demoniac. He's running wild, he is lunatic. He's full of demons. A legion of devils possesses the man. He cuts his body. He's lost his mind. And what is the state we find him in? It says, He went forth to land. There met him out of the city a certain man which had devils long time and wear no clothes. I was sent a letter just recently from someone who had read my booklet on modesty. And he couldn't understand why I wrote the book because he was a Christian nudist and thought that he was just honoring the Lord. What's the matter with me? I mean, this would be hilarious if it were not so
1: Breathtakingly
0: tragic.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail order catalog,